So Scotland Yard is on the hunt for this painting, but they can't find it anywhere. Uh, why? Because Adam Worth was carrying it around in a special briefcase that he always took with him when he was traveling. He took that painting wherever he went. Uh, I think I, I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down, but I'm just going to ignore it. Yeah, don't pick it up. <laughs> oh! Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Hey. Hey, hey. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? Well, as far as I know, we will be covering the real-life historical Joker who spawned the meme. Or that That's might have just... right! Oh, sorry, I was, I was, I was ad-libbing. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> I was going to say, or that might have just been a weird, you know, sleep uh, deprivation-induced nightmare I had. It's really hard to tell the difference these days. How long have you been awake? I have been awake since 7 a.m. yesterday. Jesus, God. Oh, the espresso's calling the shots now, baby. <laughs> the espressos are the shots. Oh, all right. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting episode, folks. Why? Well, because we are cynically seizing the means of production and riding the trends all the way to inevitable and awful stardom. Because the only way to find any success in this fucked up piece of shit world is to literally become a pop culture commentator and buy corporate branded Star Wars shit. And no, no, not just one piece of corporate branded crap. You have to buy all of it. You have to live it. You have to worship it. Yes, you have to live it, breathe it, own it, be it. And that's why we're covering Marvel's most beloved character, the Joker. That's right, Aaron, because everyone knows the Joker is, in fact, Marvel's most beloved character. Marvel is so cool. I love how they have Batman and Wonder Woman, too. DC Comics? What's that? Didn't they invent Spider-Man? Yeah, and Marvel is owned by Sony! Thor is a character that is owned by DC Comics, though. And She-Hulk is gonna be an absolute hit. There's no way it could possibly fail. Everyone cares about She-Hulk. Okay, I've had enough of this, you soy boy mother In a clown world, Ruled by absolute clowns, one smaller clown stood up and said, The coming Joker movie is a threat to the safety of our nation and will inevitably start some kind of revolution that will destroy everything. This is definitely not overblown hype for a movie that is posing as an anarchist's wet dream when it's actually going to say nothing meaningful at all. So, George, if you had to become the Joker, what kind of Joker would you be, and who would you bring on as your Harley Quinn? Well, Aaron, I'm endeavoring to free myself from the bounds of corporate imagery, so I think instead of being a conventional Joker, I would be that weird crackhead in the 7-Eleven parking lot who awkwardly stares at you as you're trying to buy a scratch-off ticket. And as for, as for my Harley Quinn, it would probably be... A mannequin from the Macy's dumpster that I found while I was scrounging for leftover pepperoni. 
Excellent. <clears throat> what about you, Aaron? What kind of Joker would you become? Uh, I think I'd become like a like a cyberpunk Joker who like flew around in space cars, and like my Harley Quinn would just be an AI assistant with a sex bot body. That can't. That's so fucked up. I can't. Computer, please bring up whoever the fuck inspired the Joker. Jesus, God, what the fuck is that? It looks like some sort of swirling cloud of chaos as a auto-generator from a RPG game is perpetually giving birth to ten different characters. Yeah, but who are these characters? Oh, God, the computer's printing something. No, it looks like it's just a list of names, and that's a letdown. This is crap. It's probably trash. I should throw it out. No, wait, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. What? Do you suppose it's a list of names of people who inspired the Joker? <laughs> As if. I don't know, that seems to make the most sense. I think you're just being unrealistic. This piece of shit computer couldn't possibly generate a list of names based on some tiny little criteria just like that. I mean, what year do you think it is? 2019? 2019? Dude, it's 1987. Oh, wait, are you telling me we've gone back in time? You know, I'm starting to think that those government PSAs were right. Aaron, we haven't gone anywhere. We've been in 1987 this whole time. What the hell have you been smoking? Sleepy time tea? Well, there's your problem. Here, take one of these cigarettes like a real man. Alright, so let's let's talk about some... Let's talk a little bit about the Joker. But before we start off, George, I would like to ask you, how much do you know about the Joker? Um, next to nothing, because I was never into the whole comic book thing. I was cool. more into, you know, staring at rocks and stuff. <laughs> I'll give... I, I have a little bit more experience than staring at rocks. Uh, I played all the Ar Arkham Asylum games. Well, not all of them, the first two. And, of course, I saw the uh, Christopher Nolan movie with the Joker in it, and I, you know, Batman used to be my favorite character, so I was exposed to the Mark Hamill Joker back in the day. I am, I honestly don't care that much about, um, about the character that much. I think it's, I think it's a cool character, but I certainly don't think, uh, don't think, uh, never mind, doesn't matter. So the tricky part, though, of covering any character inspired by anyone in real life is that they are often inspired by multiple sources, so we'll be focusing on mostly just on one today. But first, let us season this history hot pocket with a little bit <laughs> of context. So wait, wait, wait. I have an important question first. Which Joker was it that didn't shave his mustache off and they just fucking painted over it? Because that's the only one I'm inspired by. You're thinking of Man of Steel. With, uh, with whoever the fuck that guy is. I mean, you, I, you tell me, man. I don't know. I just remember ridiculous-looking, like, badly-hidden mustache that was painted over, and it was the funniest shit I'd seen in a long time. Yeah, I I did not uh, actually see that one either, so I, I didn't have the laughs that you did. Fucking poser. <laughs> anyway, as we all know... Um, the media can't shut up about this movie. And that's because Joker is an iconic character that yada yada yada. This ain't a nerd cast nerds. I'm just gonna assume everybody knows who the Joker is. He's this scary clown that kills people and hates Batman. That's it. 
Anyway, the reason the character ever became a thing was for several reasons. The main reason is that the writers over there at DC, I mean Marvel, realized that Batman needed this serious nemesis. Reason being is that all the writers were really frickin' into Victor Hugo, who was the man who wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, Victor Hugo uh, wrote another book entitled The Man Who Laughs, which is a book that Victor Hugo wrote while in exile. That Why was Victor... Oh, what? <laughs> oh, I was just going to say I'm, that I'm guessing that the next section is going to be about why he's in exile, because this isn't ancient Athens. That's not a thing that just is a casual happenstance. There's usually a pretty good story behind it. Yeah, I don't exactly know the specifics because I wasn't I wasn't researching Victor frickin' Hugo, but I do know some basic shit. Um, he had the audacity to criticize the ruling class in the church, the military, and the monarchy, and other places in his two books, Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, writing against the ruling class is a big no-no, but Victor Hugo doesn't give one flying fuck. So they ban him from the country, and what does he do? He goes after them even harder, putting pen to paper to produce the book, The Man Who Laughs. Sorry, I'm drinking sparkling water again. I don't need to be doing this on the air. That is an ominous title, though. The Man Who Oh, laughs. yeah. <laughs> I'm well, the one who laughs. <laughs> so here's the basic synopsis of the book. Um, during the reign of King James every time, the second of France, King James has a bit of a problem. He has political rivals. Unprecedented. Unprecedented. And one of these just goes to, uh, goes a bridge too far. <clears throat> one of these rivals of his. So King James has this man murdered and also commands that his son be given a Glasgow smile. Which, if you don't know, is exactly what Heath Ledger's Joker had in The Dark Knight. It's where someone takes a knife and slices the corners of your mouth all the way back to your ears. It's pretty fucked up. And it became a big thing in, like, uh, street gangs in England in the early 1800s. Yeah, and it's... Many people think of Scotland as a really idyllic place. In reality, it has had some of the, uh, some of the worst gang violence in the British Isles. Like, look <laughs> up the Glasgow Ice Cream Wars. What? Okay, you want me to do that now? Glass. No, 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 this is, just a, this is just a PSA. Basically, rival gangs all had front businesses of ice cream trucks, and so they'd still be uh, at those front businesses when gang wars would commence, so it would look like you literally had, like, ice cream trucks doing drive-bys on each other. That's insane. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Why hasn't BuzzFeed written an article about that? That's, like, perfect shit for them. Anyway, so, <clears throat> the kid gets the Glasgow smile, he's the son of a political rival, blah blah blah. In the novel, this kid becomes a street performer, and he hides the lower half of his face during the act, and at the end he takes off the mask, and everyone laughs because he's smiling so big, which is super fucked up. Unfortunately, this is sort of torturous for him, as you might imagine, but it's the best way for him to make money. And some noble lady hears about this guy, and she hears that he's the most entertaining thing in the whole of, you know, wherever. <clears throat> and so she's bored one day, so she's like, send me the boy. And a bunch of stuff happens that eventually uh, lead to this smiling man uh, living among the elite that gave him that smile to begin with. <clears throat> he gets a spot in the House of Lords where he delivers a speech. This is the, at the end of the book. There's a whole bunch of shit that happens in here, including, like, seductions and shit. But anyway, he eventually... What? I was going to say, well, you know, we are talking about France. This is true, yes. Um, so yes, he gets a spot in the House of Lords near the end, and he delivers a speech about the inequality of the day, and he's like, you gave me this smile because you guys are dogs who are constantly fighting, and 
A people like me constantly get shat on and, you know, like, and he, you know, just gives this impassioned speech. But nobody takes him seriously because he looks like he's smiling the whole time that he's telling the truth about these problems between the classes. He realizes that he's now among the people he hates the most and realizes he's wasting his time with them. So he renounces his peerage and goes searching for a girl that he fell in love with in the streets. He finds her, and she dies almost immediately. And Clown Man commits suicide by jumping into the sea. So you can see some obvious themes here that align with Joker. He's fed up with the world because it's actually all bullshit, and the joke is that he knows it, wants to blow it up, and is laughing the whole time. Have you ever read that book? No, no, I have. I've actually never read any Victor Hugo. Really? Now, yeah, I was never... Fiction was never really my, my, my thing, and those are fairly substantial works, and so I never mm -hmm. quite had the motivation to uh, actually dive in. I mean, they were the marvel of their day, so I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so another uh, source of inspiration for Joker was Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes had a nemesis named Professor James, every time Moriarty, who was Holmes's final nemesis. He only appears in one book in the Sherlock Holmes series, which is the last one, and he does appear in a, uh, a prequel as well, but that's not really counted in the same canon level, I guess. Uh, in this book, uh, Professor Moriarty is revealed to be the puppet master behind all the major crimes in England. The problem is, he is an esteemed man of the upper class, and has a good reputation everywhere. To call him out by name and claim that he is a criminal uh, was essentially social suicide, so he operated, you know, in the, um... He, he didn't operate, like, behind... He operated both behind the scenes and also had a front. That make, does that make sense? This would be a good uh, time to announce that I have information that may lead to the arrest of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Please don't die. I can't find another co-host. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, here's a quote from Sherlock Holmes regarding Professor Moriarty. And I, I think I will read this in my snobby British accent because, you know, that's probably what he sounds like. But in calling Moriarty a criminal, you are uttering libel in the eyes of the law, and there lie the glory and the wonder of it. The greatest schemer of all time, the organizer of every devilry, the controlling brain of the underworld, a brain which might have made or marred the destiny of nation, that's the man! But so aloof is he from general suspicion, so immune from criticism, so admirable in his management in self-effacement, that for those very words that you have uttered, he could hail you to court and emerge with your year's pension as a slashium, slashium, slatium, I don't know, for his wounded character. Is he not the celebrated author of The Dynamics of an Asteroid, a book which ascends to such rarefied heights of pure mathematics that is said that there was no man in the scientific press capable of criticizing it? Is, is this man to traduce? Foul-mouthed doctor and slandered professor, such would be your respective roles. That's genius, Watson. <laughs> I see. So it's not, yeah, so it's not exactly like the Joker, because the Joker is not an esteemed man. But Joker always gets to esteemed men and uses them for his own purposes. Or at least according to what I've seen in the, there's probably some comic book nerd asshole out there going, That's not at all correct! I'm working from the popular conception of the Joker, not from the nerd conception. <laughs> so the, the Joker is in fact the face of his actions, which is an even better disguise than playing the part oneself. But he's also like his face is literally made up um, so that he's adopting this sort of fool archetype. Um, 
But anyway, so Moriarty and the Man Who Laughs were the two fictional characters upon which Joker was based. But there's one more piece to this puzzle that we haven't talked about yet, and that's the real Joker himself. This is the man known as the Napoleon of the criminal world, a phrase that Sherlock Holmes ended up using to describe Professor Moriarty, though it was first applied to this person. And of course, when we think of Napoleon, we think of a conqueror. And what else do we think of? Cheese. No. (laughs) Uh, We think of height. And so this guy was actually very short. And the real-life criminal mastermind inspiration for the Joker was named Adam Worth. You can never trust people named Adam. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Adam Worth. Now, his his original name was uh, Wurtz. He was... um, he was German, uh, Jewish, and when he moved to America, they changed it to Worth to make it easier to understand, uh, which happened to a lot of names in immigration. You would be at the uh, at the gates, they'd be like, what's your name? And you'd be like, you know, Watson. They'd be like, that sounds a lot like Watts, and I don't really feel like writing on, so I guess you're Mr. Watts now. And you're just like, oh, fuck, I'm Mr. Watts, and you know, it's not you're not a happy boy. Um, so anyway, Adam Worth. Now, most of us have no idea who this man is. In fact, when I started digging into this, I didn't even know the guy even existed or that he was tied to the Joker in any way. Um, but he is, and that's why we're going to cover him this week in anticipation of the release of Marvel's greatest supervillain, which is, of course, Bane. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> so Adam Worth uh, was born in Germany in 1844, or... Perhaps he was born in Massachusetts. We actually don't know. There's lots of disagreement about it. It's more likely that he was born in Massachusetts um, because of reasons that we'll get to. And we like keep I said doing before, this on the show. We keep pick- having people who we don't actually know what their life was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what you get when you deal with these underworld types. Okay, so <clears throat> we don't really know, but his family was a poor one. And his father was working as a tailor to make ends meet, uh, both in Germany and in Massachusetts. And these were also among the years when child labor was still a thing, so Adam Worth, as a young boy, joined the working class at a very young age, which is rough. Um, and he also goes to school where he was reportedly a mischievous little scamp who was, quote, and this is this is from the, uh, the Pinkerton Agency's dossier on his life, because they ended up investigating him. Um, he was, uh, quote, addicted to making trades and playthings and various other articles with his schoolfellows, much to their disadvantage. Ah, it's like Bernie and- Madoff having the monopoly on hot chocolate in prison. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, Bernie Madoff with the Ponzi schemes. After he yeah. went to prison, he apparently used money sent to him for in prison commissary from, you know, family to essentially buy out all the stock of chocolate milk in the entire prison commissary so that then he could charge, like, three times as much. (laughs) Madoff, man. Is he dead yet? Can we cover him yet? (laughs) No, I think he's still still in prison, isn't he? Damn, I don't know. All right, so here's there was an example of this this trading addiction that uh that Adam Worth had, uh, and it was recorded in the like I said the Pinkerton Agency's dossier, uh, and it contains this story about how he fooled uh, he was fooled by an older boy into thinking a shiny new penny was worth more than two old ones. Adam fell for it, brought the penny home, and showed his dad, proudly boasting that he had outdone another foolish boy on the playground. And his dad was like, you are, I'm, you're dead to me. You're not my son. 
Um, and that's why uh, uh, Adam would eventually run away from home. But when he was five, the family packed up and moved uh, to... Uh, oh, shit, they're already in Massachusetts. Where did they... They moved somewhere. Fuck, wait. I got that completely wrong. Oh, Jesus. I feel like such an idiot right now. They changed towns in Massachusetts. They didn't leave, go to Massachusetts. They were still there. They just changed towns. doesn't matter because when Adam turned 10 or 14, we really don't know which it is. He ran away from it all and traveled to that holiest of destinations. Your favorite city, Boston. Disgusting. <laughs> he spent a few years there working and presumably becoming a very patriotic American boy because Boston... Before moving to New York, New York City, turning into a small cat and being sold out of a box in an uh, animated world. Uh, have you ever seen Oliver and Company? Oh, God, yeah. That, wow, that's reaching back. Mine. Mm-hmm. If you just said, if you just asked me, I would have said no. But no, now that you mention it, wow, that's reaching back into some deep, dark abysses of the past. Mm-hmm. Because it's always once upon a time in New York City. Oh, God, no, stop. <laughs> you can feel the nostalgia coming. <laughs> Lock <right>. the door. <laughs> so he got a job in New York City uh, as a clerk in a department store. But he was only there for a month, and he was quoted as saying, this is the longest and last time he ever worked an honest job. Uh, which is kind of funny. So, <clears throat> unfortunately, the year was 1861, and Worth was 17. The year was 1861, and we're getting into the, uh, the American Civil War. Worth was attracted to the $1,000 bounty uh, a soldier would be paid for volunteering, um, as a, uh, and he was also interested in possibly having some adventures. He's a 17-year-old boy, you know, he's going through that phase. So he lies about his age and joins up with the Union Army, quickly becoming a sergeant over the course of his first few months in the military. And he was in command of his own cannon battery after a while and fought in the second battle of Bull Run, where he was wounded and sent to D.C. for recovery. Uh, However, while he was in the hospital grabbing nurses by the ass when they weren't looking, he discovered something strange. And we're not exactly sure how it happened, but Adam Worth learned that he had been marked as KIA in the battle. So, uh, basically, everyone thinks he's dead when he's only wounded. So That's that's absolutely the dream. I wish the government thought I was dead. (laughs) So what does he do? Does he correct the error and return to the service? Nope. No. As soon as he recovered, he realized that now he was basically nobody. And using this uh, to his advantage, he would go to various recruiting offices, sign up to be in the army, receive his bounty of $1,000, and vanish. And we really don't know how many times he did this, but apparently it was frequently enough that the Pinkerton Detective Agency caught on and started tracking him. And he was like 18 at this time, so, you know, he's a young kid. So Adam's, Adam Worth's spidey sense goes off, though. So he promptly quits uh, doing this silly thing and heads to Portsmouth uh, to hide out till the fire burns down. And when he feels the heat sufficiently off, he returns to New York, New York City, where he begins pickpocketing as a career. But this quickly turns into straight-up master thieving. He starts a little gang of miscreants and begins breaking into buildings, pulling off daring bank heists and more. And with his gang seeing some success, and now that Adam Worth is actually worth something, uh, the the master thief himself begins to treat his thievery like a little business. He furnished the capital required to pull off uh, heists in the city, and he often spent ungodly amounts of time planning elaborate heists before leading his team of burglars to greater and greater thefts. See, capitalism, capitalism works, it's fine. It's literally capitalism. 
um, that he, he started treating it like a like a like a business. So there you go. Um, in 1866, one such heist came to fruition when Worth broke into the Atlantic Transportation Company and cracked the safe that contained three or thirty thousand uh, dollars back then worth of solid gold. And I don't know how much that would be. We should calculate that. Let's see, thirty thousand dollars in 1866. Show me the money. Oh God, almost five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> That is at least four sandwiches worth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could probably Unfor even get the extra meat. Oh, yeah. you could. This is like Jimmy John's extra meat, bacon on, leave the bread in. Oh, oh man, you get two bags of chips. Oh, Decadence. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, unfortunately for him, all that gold was actually inside another strong box within the safe, and Worth couldn't crack it before sunup. So, while this one didn't go so well, later that year he robbed an insurance company of about $20,000, so, hey, you know. You know, consolation prize. Yeah, that's like $350,000, it's, yeah. So, anyway, around this time he began hanging out with other fellow thieves that weren't in his gang. Um, presumably mostly halflings, gnomes, and kobolds in the big city. But everyone was a bit starved for work in New York City because the thieving scene was so big. Um, Still is. Yeah, it's still it, but but back England and New York City and all these uh these or not England, London, sorry, and all these uh port cities and whatnot, uh always had problem or had a had a phase, I should say, where thievery was at its worst. Um and this was that era for New York City. Um, still is so yeah, every, make sure you stay what? away from a place called Wall Street. They'll literally steal your house, your livelihood, everything. Oh. <laughs> it's the it's the worst one. Yeah. Did you see The Big Short? Have we talked about that? I have seen it, but I don't think we've talked about it. It's pretty freaking good, for as far as movies go. Um, and it does a good job of exposing the bullshit that goes on there. Anyway, so, he's hanging around with these work-starved thieves. And there's another little group of miscreants uh, looking to Boston, uh, where Worth uh, sniffed out a potential job of profitable size. There was a vacant barber shop situated right next to a rather sizable bank. <laughs> rather sizable, you say? Rather sizable, indeed. So, <laughs> Worth was like, I'm gonna rent this bitch. So he does, and he starts using it as some kind of a drugstore. It was like a tonic healing store. Wait, 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 wait. Was prostitution legal then? What? <laughs> you, said, you said I'm gonna rent this bitch. Oh, yeah. No, it was. It was. And we'll get there, too. Anyway, so he uses this store as a front and starts selling made-up tonics. And in the back, he builds a partition to cover up the digging he was about to start doing. Wait, was and he, like, friending old people from high school on Facebook and asking if they wanted to get involved in his business? Because uh, that's uh, what you, when you said, the selling the questionable tonics. This is... This brought back some very painful memories of multi-level marketing scams. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, it, he probably had that kind of shit, you know, nailed down. Don't you want to be your own boss, Aaron? Yep, I do. I want to be my own boss and sell fucking spindles. Do you remember that shit? That's a very vague reference. Spindle? That was a multi-level marketing scheme that uh, a person whose name began with N uh, was trying to run the first year. Oh! I know yeah. what you mean, but I've, I don't remember this. We have to talk later. Yeah, we'll have to talk later. He definitely tried to get me involved, which that was kind of fucked up, but here we are. So anyway, he's got this business front going, and for about a week, he and his companions are tunneling their way beneath the bank, and they finally get there, and they emerge in the vault, and they found three safes containing about a million dollars total, 
uh, for back then, um, which is one million in 1866. Hmm. Oh, whoops. It calculated for a hundred dollars. What, what the fuck? Come on, calculate, you bastard. Wow. It's not doing it. Ugh. It's I think so it's something like... Th it's probably about like three million dollars. Um, it's... The, the, the rate is definitely a lot more than three. If 30,000 was 500,000... Hmm. Oh, yeah, you're correct. Hold on, I'm, I'm gonna find this. I will... One dollar in eight. Please stand 18, by while we address Aaron's technical difficulties. I have to know. I have. Okay, so let's see. Endears one million. One million. Oh no! Oh wait, I calculated. I calculated ten million. It was fifteen million dollars. <laughs> that is a lot. So yeah, he's got fifteen million dollars just for a week's work and uh, a front company. He also made a little money off the company too. So, um, uh, let's see, where was I? Yeah, so taking this money, they flee with detectives hot on their trail. Uh, Pinkertons are after them all over again. In New York, they divide the cash and all go their separate ways. One moves to Canada, buys a farm and some land, and lives a good, honest life from then on, using his money to take care of his family and friends. But it only lasted a year before he died of a heart attack. Directed Another by, took his share. Directed by M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> the ultimate irony. Another takes his share and spends it all on women and booze before going on, like, literally $5 million on women and booze. Uh, before going on another heist, which he bungled and got himself 20 years solitary confinement for. Which, that's quite a life, quite a change there. <laughs> Straight up not having a good time. Yeah, <laughs> and all alone. So Adam Worth uh, took his share to Liverpool, England, and hoarded away his money. Because he was set for life, um, but he had the blood of a thief. He liked the chase and felt like it was essentially straight up his job to rob people and cause chaos. And I'm, was, I'm, I'm he, sensing, I'm, I'm starting to get the Joker vibe. Yeah, it's, we're getting there. So he, he got this new partner named Bullard, and he got Bullard out of jail, which is why they became partners. He helped him escape. Uh, and they both fell for the same girl, a barmaid named Kitty Flynn, and Kitty eventually married Bullard, and while they were on their honeymoon, Worth robbed a bunch of pawn shops. I mean, that's uh, what I would London. do. Right. Um, it's just all alone. He's like, my friends are out of town. I guess I'll rob some pawn shops. So that's that, what he does. It's better than third wheeling. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so one mark was a massive pawn shop from which he stole about 25,000 British pounds in gold and jewels. And when Kitty and Bullard returned, he divided the take with them as something like a wedding present. So he takes care of his friends, you know? He's a, he's a good guy. Uh, they weren't even involved in the, in the robbery, but he still gave them the loot. From there, the three of them decided to move to Paris, where they bought an abandoned three-story building near an opera house. They then turned the first floor into a bar. The okay, second I, floor... I, like, I like that. First floor <laughs> bar. I'm tracking with you. The second floor conjugal area. Wait, um, uh... Okay. <laughs> can I withdraw my can I, can I withdraw my lease? Yeah, you may. <laughs> the third floor was turned into a gambling den, and here they made a uh, bank, as it was a very popular bar with elites and whatnot. Uh, just like Epstein, or not Epstein, Herpstein, or Wyatt Earp, whatever. 
But when Pinkerton agents showed up, they knew the jig was up, but not before stealing a bag of diamonds from a customer on closing night. <laughs> yeah, they invited this one, jewelry. One last. <laughs> one last hurrah. Steals a bag of diamonds from a jeweler. It's like, who carries a bag of diamonds around? <laughs> I don't know. So the group of three goes back to London, where they buy a mansion, which Adam Worth begins using as something like a thieves' guild from Skyrim. All the new thieves to London, and coming in from America especially, are filtered through this structure, and they're offered substantial benefits if they decide to become a member of his gang. But they're repeatedly exposed to the same two lines of dialogue over <laughs> and over again. Oh god, what a fate. <laughs> Seems you've met with a horrible fate. Um, from here on, nearly every single large heist from the 1870s into the 80s and beyond could be traced back to Adam Worth. It got so bad that instead of just cracking safes and locks, Worth would just hire people to work the security jobs and replace all the locks with garbage-tier devices, or with locks that Worth had the keys to. So basically what you're saying is he's ascended from the petty crook status to the government status of crook. Yeah, he's, he's got a, he's got a, uh, this is the, like, black underground network kind of stuff, you know? Um, also, like, is, is he just doing this in England, or is he going around to other places during this All period? over Europe. All over all Europe, of, okay. Yeah, all over Europe. And we're tour. actually, a, we're actually about to go uh, across the, the pond again. So in 1873, Worth went to Kingston, Jamaica, where he discovered that there was about $10,000 in a safe near the docks. So that, and I don't even know why he was in Jamaica to begin with, but he's, he was there and he's like, somebody's like, oh, there's like $10,000 in that safe. And he's like, oh shit. So that night he and this his This is crew, literally a side quest. Yeah, this is a side quest. So that night he and his crew broke into the storehouse and started cracking the safe. And at a certain point they were approached by two bloodhounds that were supposed to be guarding the place, but they were super nice to the dogs, so the dogs didn't attack. Um... But yeah, so they're cracking this safe, the dogs aren't barking, uh, but somebody makes too much noise and there's a Jamaican man nearby and he looks over and sees them and he shouts, THIEF! And they get away, but the man who caught them got blamed for it and was beaten the next morning. No good deed goes unpunished. Left him holding the bag with nothing in it except for fists. So anyway, back <laughs> in Europe... <laughs> Do you know how to use expressions? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so back in Europe, Worth's brother John had tracked Adam down and he had a plan. Together, they would introduce an international forgery scheme that would swindle banks around the world out of absolute millions. And of course, Adam liked this idea, so he funded John's little scheme. But John almost immediately fucked it up by using a badly forged document that was immediately caught by some banker. I wrote Baker in the script. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, Adam Worth was the only real adversary. I guess adversary. you could say they were going to get that bread. Ah! Ah! That, that was painful. Man. I'd like to apologize to our listeners. Now, Adam Worth had only re one real adversary in all this, at least locally, besides the Pinkertons, and that was Inspector John Shore. John Shore was the kind of guy who connects photos and shit with red yarn on a bulletin board. Um, he might have been the only one who was seeing the pattern here with all the heists and crimes, all somehow leading back to Adam Worth, but no one believed him because it sounded like a conspiracy theory. Um, and yeah, he's on such a level with all of it, he sounds like a crazy person. I mean, it can't all be connected, can it? 
I'm feeling a little bit attacked right here. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he was he was detecting some kind of conspiracy where where it wasn't really a conspiracy. It was just you know one guy controlling everything. But anyway, so John Worth got himself arrested uh, with the forged document and went to trial, uh, which gives Inspector Shore his first and possibly only shot at taking down the Worth crime syndicate. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out. Adam Worth hired the best legal team in England and got his brother acquitted. And Inspector Shore went back on the hunt, went back to his bulletin board. And uh, he, the one upshot of this is he did get a police officer stationed near Worth's house 24-7 to report who went in and who came out. Um, so he did get something out of it. Um, and in 1876, Worth went to an art auction and saw a painting of Georgiana Cavendish, the Duchess of Cavendish. Aristocrat names aren't real. No, they're fake. Cavendish. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> <sighs> and of course, he sees this painting and he's just mesmerized. He's like, holy fuck. This is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. So he immediately decides he has to have it. And it's selling for about $10,000, which is pocket change for him. But of course, you know, if why would he buy it when he could... St- deal it <laughs> you know hey he's, he's a he's a little thief you know he's gotta gotta steal it it's the only way he enjoys getting things so he hires two of his associates to join him in breaking into the art gallery and stealing the painting of course they pull it off with nary a hitch no jamaicans patrolling that's the problem and adam worth does unspeakable things with the painting that we will not mention uh, at the very night of the heist when he got home probably now, Adam Worth had promised his two associates that he would quickly sell his painting and get their money, their cut of their money, um, but he actually just decides to keep this painting for a long, long time. And they're getting impatient. They're like, what gives? It's just a picture of a Cavendish person. I, I you know, and one of these men, uh, Junka, tries to trick Adam Worth into talking about the heist in front of an undercover policeman, but no one out thieves Adam Worth. He's got that spidey sense, remember? So he figures out what's going on pretty quick, and he literally flips the table over on top of Junka and never speaks with him again. So the other man who Worth had taken on as his in his sneaky quest for monkey spanking material was named Elliot, and he went to the United States, tried a robbery, and was caught. Under interrogation by Pinkerton agents, Elliot revealed that Adam Worth was indeed the puppeteer master, and that he the puppeteer mastermind, and that he also had the world's best wank material. Available to man. Scotland this getting, Yard... This, this, this is getting weird. No, It gets weirder. I'm not making this shit up. So Scotland are, Yard... Went, are things alright, Aaron? I'm fine. <laughs> I don't think Adam Worth is. So Scotland Yard is on the hunt for this painting, but they can't find it anywhere. Uh, why? Because Adam Worth was carrying it around in a special briefcase that he always took with him when he was traveling. He took that painting wherever he went. Uh, I think I, I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down, but I'm just going to ignore it. Yeah, don't pick it up. <laughs> oh! he, his wife literally uh, later on, I think his wife did. Is, um, Wait, he had a wife? Was, uh, yes, later on. Okay, um, okay. And we'll get to that. But This is all anyway. very strange. <laughs> anyway, speaking of traveling, Adam Worth was on his way to South Africa where he planned to exploit diamond mines for profit. It didn't work out so well, uh, so he was very stressed. In order to re- and in order to relieve some of this stress, he oh, there's a coffee maker. You again. you can hear the espresso making. I like this. This is like a 
Basically, a regular guest on the show is the automatic shutoff feature of my espresso machine. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he was going to South Africa to exploit diamond mines, and it didn't work out well. He was stressed. To alleviate stress, he robbed a stagecoach that was transporting diamonds. Transporting diamonds. Better than Xanax. Yeah. But it didn't actually work. Uh, he and his accomplice were fought off by the guards. Um, nobody was killed, but there was uh, an ensuing gun battle. But it did help him relieve some stress, so he could think about his new scheme. The next one involved him posing as a feather merchant, which... Uh, wait. Wow. What is a feather know. merchant for? Uh, they sell feathers to birds. Wait, oh, is it like maybe for pillows and stuff? Because yeah. you know, pillows are made out of feathers. Because I, I can't really think of another commercial purpose for selling feathers. Uh, Hobby Lobby. Halloween costumes. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, he's a feather merchant now, and he becomes best buds with the local postmaster, who is in charge of the, uh, of tra not transporting the diamonds, uh, that's, that's incorrect. He was in charge of, uh, essentially the most secure place in town, uh, and he had all the keys there in the office. Um, so, uh, but he also manages the shipping of the, uh, of, of the diamonds to other countries. Uh, sorry, I'm getting a little tired, so I'm getting a little slow here. Um... But he, yeah, he holds the key to these storerooms, and Adamworth befriended him, and eventually, when Mr. Postmaster wasn't looking, made a wax, uh, a wax uh, impression, and then made a copy of the key. And just before the next shipment uh, was going to leave from all the mines, Adamworth headed to the harbor and uh, cut the ship loose. This meant that the diamonds being transported to the harbor had to be delayed and stored where? At the post office, in that very secure little room. Hmm. That night, Adam Worth broke in and stole $500,000 worth of diamonds. Should we convert that, too? I mean, technically, he didn't break in. He did have a key. Well, that's true. He let himself in. <laughs> Helped himself. Takes, uh, this looks delicious. Uh, diamonds. Excellent. Perfect for my Minecraft collection. So he takes these diamonds to London, where he pulls a pro-gamer move, pro move, and he opens up a jewelry store <laughs> and sells all that loot that he got for free at cut rate, uh, cut price rates. Ah, uh, cut rate prices. God, I can't talk. I'm so tired. Yeah, yeah. So this pull guy yourself is like together, the Aaron. I've literally been awake for days. I know, but you, you, you take Adderall, so I and I don't have it. So could, could you pass one? I could. <laughs> Depends. Do you have cool guy syndrome? <laughs> anyway, so he gets married around this time, uh, presumably proposing with the biggest diamond he found. And he has a couple of kids in the 1880s. And then I wrote 1982 again. No, it was 1882. In 1882, Adam Worth went to Belgium in order to rob a money transport because $500,000 worth of diamonds and all the profits thereof are not enough for him. Um... He goes there, he goes to Belgium, and he's going to rob this transport. And we're not exactly sure how this went down. The Pinkertons have a kind of detailed report, but it's still all very confusing. But here's basically what happened. Uh, work, Worth and a couple of fresh accomplices had a copy of a key that opened a locked stagecoach uh, that was carrying banking information and presumably a good amount of cash. So they informed the driver that they have a package. They're like, hey, yo, Mr. Stagecoach Man, we have a package that needs delivering. But it's so big, you'll have to come help carry it to the coach. So the driver, not having any idea who these men are, he's like, okay, like you're paying me, fine. So he goes and abandons the coach, which is locked. 
But that's when Worth appears from the shadows, unlocks the door, and gets the goods. But the lookout, Johnny Curtin, fails to warn Worth that the driver is returning. He had one job, and he fucked it up. And there Every might have been a reason. time with fucking Johnny Curtin. The fucking Johnny Curtin. There There'll may be, be curtains for you if you fail me again. Oh my god. Yeah, but like I was saying, there actually may be a reason he failed. Um, so the driver shows back up and is like, Dude, what the fuck? And Worth is like, Dude, what the fuck? Where's Johnny? And the driver says, Who the fuck is Johnny? Who the fuck are you? What is going on here? Some kind of boogaloo? So he raises the alarm and, and Worth gets arrested. And Worth was later tried and convicted and was sentenced to seven years in prison. While there, some guy just shows up and says, Look, dude, we know you took that painting, and you're jacking off to it all the time, but we'll give you $3,000 if you just hand it over. Worth, of course, remains mum on the subject, because when you have spank material that hot, you don't give that shit up. Unfortunately for Worth, him being in prison is not exactly the best time. While behind bars, one of his former acquaintances named Shineburn, who hated Worth, started hiring people in the prison to abuse him. How bad was it? Use your imagination. While in prison, Worth also received word uh, that his wife had been raped in his absence by the man he'd done his last robbery with. The man who didn't warn Worth he was about to get caught. The man who didn't go to jail because he basically left Worth on the job. And this, uh, this sexual assault, this rape, drives Worth's wife insane and she's committed to the asylum. This just went from being, like, fun to not being fun really fast. Well, a bill was delivered. Let's just put it like that. Uh, when you there's no honor among thieves, you go to prison, they'll rape your wife. You know, it's like it's just that's what you get when you go in these circles, I guess. So Worth's children were also rehomed with his brother, which of course was in America, halfway around the world. And Worth just going through this daily abuse, getting word of all this shit that's going on in his life. He leaves prison in poor health, and his finances have gone to shit because in his absence, you know, well, what's going to happen? He had a ton of money, but, uh, you know, before, but now he was almost broke. Um, he'd also been spending tons of money. He had two yachts and several properties and all that shit, and now, like I said, he's basically broke. And it also seems like he might be turning a new leaf in a sense. Uh, he tells his friends and confidants that his real goal now is to make sure his children don't follow him on his path. Uh, because he's realized that this life of crime, um, you know, basically fucked everything. So what's he do? Uh, he obviously robs a diamond store to get the funds to go to America. <laughs> and then he visits his insane wife at the asylum, and he has to look at this shell of a person he once loved and say goodbye forever. Um, just leaves her there. Um, meanwhile, in 1899, William Pinkerton himself gets involved. At his Chicago office on a rainy day, Pinkerton tips back a glass of whiskey and with his feet up on the desk, looks Yo, out. Ooh, oh, can I, uh, can I, I, want, I, want, I want to be William Pinkerton. Okay, you can be William Pinkerton, totally. He looks out the window and says, This city's gone to shit. He sets his glass down firmly. Suddenly, there's a knock at the door. Come in. Pinkerton rumbles. The door opens and a courier steps in. Telegram for you, Mr. Pinkerton. Give it here. Pinkerton growls. The telegram reads, Letter awaiting you at house. Stop. Send for it. Stop. Pinkerton calls home and asks his daughter if a letter has been delivered. She reports that a strange man showed up out of nowhere and gave her an envelope. 
Pinkerton sends someone to pick up the letter and bring it back to the office. It's from Adam Worth, and he's asking for help. If Pinkerton guarantees his safety, he'll reveal something of a confidential manner. The very next day, Pinkerton is on the phone with Adam Worth himself. Within five minutes of the phone call, Adam Worth is being ushered physically into the office. Adam offers to give up the painting to Scotland Yard, because it's all about the painting now. And, the, and it's really his only bargaining chip at this point. He wants to give it to either Scotland Yard or the Pinkerton Agency or both, so long as it's only done after he's dead. That's right! He wants all of this shit, all that spank material, until the day he dies. So wait, where's the painting been while he was in prison? Uh, I believe hidden away on his estate. I'm not sure, though. Um, most people don't seem to know. Gotcha. So he doesn't, he doesn't actually last much longer after this, though, because he's reached the end of his road. He's getting, you know, pretty old, and he's just gone through a horrible experience in prison where he's lost everything. He does eventually bring his children back to live with him in London, um, but he dies in the January of 1902, and um, he wasn't even buried under his own name. He was buried under an ali alias, Henry J. Raymond. But that's the story of Adam Worth, a man who existed tangent and tangentially inspired Marvel's Joker. So to tie this all back in, Adam Worth was inspired by Arthur Conan Doyle to create... Wait, um, I think you made that passive. But I don't think about? Adam Worth was inspired by Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, no, oh you're right. Okay. Adam Worth no, no, inspired... No. Oh, okay. Yeah, Adam Worth inspired Arthur Conan Doyle to create Professor Moriarty as a nemesis to Sherlock Holmes. And Professor Moriarty was the inspiration, part of the inspiration for the Joker in the sense that he was a secret puppet master, of course. But the Smiling Man was the real, like, uh, aesthetic part of it. He inspired the chaotic, ghoulish side of the Joker. And the marriage of these two archetypes, the Thief and the Fool, create a character that is the Fool Thief. Uh, and what might be the motivation of a Fool Thief? Well, he want, fool oh, I got it, I got it, I know this one. Okay, go, go, go. He wants to watch the world burn. Yes. <laughs> Because a fool's currency is not money. A fool's currency is attention and maximal absurdity. A fool looks for the absurdities in everyday life and mocks them, bringing out absurd patterns that are just accepted as the way things are. The fool is a, is a destroyer, but a largely overall helpful one. The court fool was the only one who could make fun of the king and get away with it. The thief, on the other hand, benefits from stolen capital and underground networks. However, these things are also their undoing. Money can only do so much, for an, and an underground network always has traitors in the midst. No honor among thieves. So, the, for the Joker, uh, Joker as an archetype, we're looking at a character that sees money as largely useless, except for the power it has to control other people. The Joker figures out that what makes you weak, it, the Joker will figure out what makes you weak, and then maximize an, uh, on that opportunity, whether it be your family, money, sex, virtues, whatever. The Joker looks for dirt on everyone and acts alone. Uh, and this is where I'd like to talk a little bit about memes. I hope you're ready. Oh, I'm always ready for memes. This is a tough, this is a, this is a touchy subject. Um, so before, but, before we get into that though, just to sort of go back to the last thing you were saying about the sort of the nature of the Joker and their relationship with other, with other people. Um, mm -hmm. I remember this guy, this is a conversation. Don't even remember who it was with probably sometime around like 2013 um, I remember we were having a very serious intellectual discussion about the differences between the Joker and Bane. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember sort of what we came up with was that someone like Bane, someone who is in a sense a demagogue, has and wants to have followers, 
Whereas the Joker doesn't actually want followers. He has henchmen who he uses for his ends, but he doesn't actually desire to be followed. He desires to be watched and to be observed, but he doesn't actually want that leader-follower relationship. He wants the spectator-performer relationship. Yes, which is why the Joker burns the money and blows up the hospital, you know? Not about um, sending him, you know, all that, yep. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's why he tells Harvey Dent to shoot him and introduce a little anarchy. It's like, he really doesn't care about himself, he cares about the joke, right? Um, proving that this structure is actually entirely absurd. Uh, and I think that combination of fool and thief is what makes, uh, Joker so interesting. He steals the money, but he burns it. It's, it's actually kind of brilliant in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, so like I was saying, we're going to talk about these memes, uh, and it's a touchy topic because it gets into some sort of dark rings on the internet, but I started seeing these, uh, on Twitter first, and it, it didn't worry me at first, I just thought it was really funny, uh, and that's the clown world meme, uh, and I did a little research into this because I, I actually don't know where the hell that thing came from. But according to Know Your Meme, a post was created on 4chan with the picture of the clown alongside the question, quote, What emotion does this image evoke from you? <laughs> Which, when you look at that question right next to the picture, uh... <laughs> oh, I skipped, a, I skipped a section here. I should make it clear that, uh, the, uh... The uh, Clown World meme is just a picture of Pepe the Frog, a notable alt-right meme. And he's wearing a multicolored clown afro and a red nose. And, um, a, ta and a tasteful bow tie. I didn't, know, I didn't even notice that. Um, but anyway, so that, that appeared with what emotion does this image evoke from you? Which is a bold question, honestly. Um, but I think the reaction to the Clown World meme in alt-right circles is generally an absurdist nihilist outlook on the world we live in. And I don't know if that that's how you feel but for me I think it's just it's some people who feel like the world is going to shit looking at it being like isn't this absurd are you laughing now funny man I think that's what it is I, I don't know if, if you feel that way I don't feel okay <laughs> I mean you f definitely feel awake <laughs> right um so it's taking something innocent enough, which is a picture of a frog, uh, which is, you know, the whole Pepe thing to begin with was just a picture from a... It was a character from a cartoon that um, actually was... I, I don't even remember what it was about, but it was it was co-opted by the alt-right. Um, but it takes this, this picture of something sort of innocent and turns it into something so absurdly evil. Uh, you could say that it's self-deflating on purpose. And I think the reaction of the general public toward the new Joker movie comes from the same place, but it, present, it presents a different answer to the absurdity of modernity. Uh, Joker represents, at least in the trailers, at least in this new movie, someone who's beaten up, pushed around, never really fits in for some reason, and somebody who loses all the things he loves for no good reason. Mainly, the main thing is that he doesn't fit in. And his response, it appears in the new Joker, is that he's going, he basically becomes an agent of chaos in order to burn it all down just sort of out of frustration with not fitting in. And he's going to laugh the whole time he gets his sweet revenge. Because the world was not made for him, it makes no sense to him, and it won't accept him. And there's basically, because there's basically two ways you can handle that realization. One, you can try to find the humor in it and work your way through it, knowing full well all of this is bullshit. Or you can go the Joker route and uh, actively seek to tear it all all down. And I think the, re the reason people are worried about this new Joker movie is that it might create a model for anarchists who are fed up with this world left, right, and center. Uh, and it might eventually influence people to mimic some of the Joker's actions in the movie like Heat did for the L.A. shootout. 
because if you listen to our real life Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, episode, you'll hear about how the L.A. shootout was directly inspired by the movie Heat, which had a shootout in L.A. But that's the pro- that's my main problem with making heroes or making bad guys into heroes in movies, because if people see the villain side of the story and they relate strongly enough to the actions of that character, um, the actions that the character is taking in their story, they might indeed attempt to carry out something uh, or begin behaving like those characters. I really believe it has long term effects. And I don't know if you want to add anything to this because I'm just sort of going right now. I mean, I was just sort of thinking about what you were saying about um, making bad guys the heroes in movies, and I was thinking about that recently, and I think sort of the reason that that happens is because the tendency to avoid confronting moral issues and ambiguity and hard questions sort of led us to adopt a very one-dimensional sort of hero figure in so much of our media that is well quite frankly very uninteresting because he's boring one-dimensional there's no real depth to the character and so they started to look to the quote-unquote bad guys as real characters who actually have complex motivations actually have real development and depth because it sort of got established that the good guy was going to be good and that was it and so the bad guy is the only place you could really actually develop characters and i think that's why we've ended up with our sort of obsession with these anti-hero anti-hero characters as a culture hmm interesting yeah i think i think it's the it's the end of a it's the end of a road we've been working our way here you know i personally i'm i'm actually very excited to see joker uh, I haven't been like interested in watching a movie in a really, really long time, but the cultural impact that people are talking about this possibly having, I need to see it firsthand so I can sort of at least have some kind of measure of what of what it's portraying. I don't know if you feel the same way. I mean, I don't really go to see movies. Um, I've just I'm so utterly cynical and jaded that anything produced on a large scale is going to be just an absolute shit show of rehashed aphorisms, trite moral witticisms with all the depth of a of a puddle, absolutely boring, <laughs> predictable plots, corporate imagery everywhere. It's literally just like the um Essentially, it's an entertainment IV. It just gives you the basic nutrients you need to survive. It just takes the same tired old elements, mixes them up into a slurry, and injects them into your veins. That's what it seems like every major movie that comes out, with few, with some exceptions, but almost every major movie, is literally almost indistinguishable from every other major movie. You just shift around a couple of the same elements, change a few names... And they're pretty much all the same. Like, I'm so tired of corporate entertainment. Well, yeah. I mean, personally, my biggest problem is that they uh, these days they, they follow the structure of the hero's journey a lot of the time. But they never give it, like, the final win, you know? Or the final total loss. Uh, they they get you all amped up and then they give you, like, a big nothing burger at the end where it's like, Actually, like, they were they were all the bad guys. It's like, 
you know, like have some balls. Take a stand on something. Say like, if if the if the villain really is bad, um, figure out why. Because, you know, my whole thing with the uh, with basically, you realize that you know you become jaded with the world and you become upset about like corporate bullshit and you're finally like ah i i've had enough and you kind of have like two options these days well i don't want to make false dichotomy here but it seems like there's two major options that most people are springing for um which is anarchy they they don black and they go in the streets and you know they break shit and um and that happens left right and center um or they uh adopt like this sort of this sort of uh, witness sort of attitude, which is just, I'm going to sit back and watch this and just hang on for the ride. Uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if, it, it's sort of like there's a, there's a complacency versus a, an action, but the action doesn't actually produce any change. It's just noise. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, I think it's true because there, there are a few things that are more transformative than action combined with intention and belief and i think that the status quo of our sort of stagnant society has done a very good job of effectively divorcing those from each other hmm. you you cut out on the second one what was the second one um real action, sin- and- action and then real sincere intention not just like emotional outlashing which is often mistaken for real intention but actual real honest intention to change the course and to do something different yeah i would say that's a that's a that's a good pairing because like it's it's easy to make a molotov cocktail and burn down a building and it's easy to sit at a desk and drink a cup of coffee and talk about how things should be different but it's really hard to actually commit yourself to action that will change the course of society. Yeah, it's true. And a lot of people feel like um, going out and voting is the best they can do. And, you know, I, I, I honestly, I don't know about that anymore. I'm just sort of like, uh, maybe like develop yourself on an individual level and help those that you can immediately help within your vicinity. Um but I don't know. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but it, that's kind of where I'm getting. I'm just like, well, you know, I got we got a little podcast and we're helping people learn history. And, you know, we talk about moral shit and, you know, uh, we get metaphysical sometimes. But uh, I feel like that's we don't even have that many listeners, but I feel like that's at least it's at least, uh, you know, hosting one more place where people can, you know, look, you know, interact honestly i mean i was i was getting messages from i hate social media on twitter he's a he's a he or she i actually don't know um is a a listener who's given us feedback loads of times and uh we were just going back and forth and uh i hate social media told me that uh they listened to the ceausescu episode and they were really moved by it and it motivated them to go listen to the mao episode and uh the uh Basically, they shared with me that they had family members that had survived both regimes, both Ceausescu and Mao, um, and that they had they literally had to escape from these horrible societies. And I was just like, "Fuck!" You know, I know I know the one Romanian uh, who requested the uh, you know the Ceausescu episode. You know, 
it was there's something you know like you, you study history and it, it's it's sort of like not very personal until it comes home or until it it hits your your own personal history and then it's like oh wow like so this is part of my past you know i think confronting your past is kind of step one uh to confronting your future um i might just be babbling now because i'm tired i mean certainly a possibility but no it's true so there are certain moments when things go from being abstract to being real and you sort of approach a little bit closer to the actual experiential reality so for example today i was in a i was in a meeting at work and somebody used a mal quote to describe their um perspective on something and it's just it's when you actually know you know know about mal and know everything that is lurking behind the scenes of a quote like you know let a hundred flowers or let a thousand flowers bloom or whatever it is it's just it's it's kind of disgusting to have somebody just use that flippantly to describe their uh perspective on something to do with work yeah um but then again we also live in the world of the you know che guevara t-shirt uh next to the starbucks frappuccino uh, on instagram so i had i had two people tell me never to cover che guevara because they thought um i would get in trouble like i would really get the people riled up and i don't know i I still very much plan on covering che but i'm like there are people who are that sensitive about it um you know who would threaten threaten people um i believe it you know because i've seen it uh and i had i had experiences at at, uh you know in my master's program where i was called all kinds of names and all kinds of shit just for talking like a normal person uh for not sort of using the the for even being interested in history like that's how bad it was uh i total i fully expect to get a ton of blowback on mal um and i didn't i totally expected a lot of blow i did actually i guess i didn't get expected a lot of blowback for goebbels but i was pretty hard on that guy um and there's a lot of people out there who are kind of like the people who you know well, I don't want to get get into that. There's just it's just, you know, the first couple of the first few months I was in Austin, I saw a woman at the coffee shop wearing uh a t-shirt with Mao on it. And I was like, "How ignorant can you be?" And then there's a part of me that's like, "Well, what propaganda did they read that made them go, "Mao's a cool guy." You know, he 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 changed fixed China. You know, um I'm like, "Where where can I find that material because I'm so fascinated to figure out how you actually think that this person is admirable." Like was the starvation of millions like was that just a was that just a necessary move is that is that what you're saying or they would say or they might say something like well the numbers are fudged and made up and they're they're propaganda spread by the you know the western governments and all that shit i just don't know um personally you know it's like it's been nice to have these sort of grounding moments where i run into people who have actually been through it um that makes it that makes it real. It's like, oh yeah, okay. So you did lose family members over there, you know. Um, there was one uh, one person I heard about. I'm just a couple people away, but somebody who survived the Hmong massacres in uh, was it Vietnam? Um, yeah, in Cambodia and Vietnam. Yeah, 
there was a some dude survived those things, and it's like, fuck, like, well, that's real. That's a real person who went through that. It's not an abstract number on a piece of paper or on my computer screen that I'm just writing about. You know, it's that was that was all real. And when it starts to get into reality, that's when people start getting scared. And I used to be that way when I. And I would just get very, very existential reading about all this stuff. And it was like, oh, my God, like, you know, history repeats itself and we're going down the same road. And oh, oh Jesus Christ. You know, it's like you feel like you're stuck along for the ride. Um, and it's if you're like me, you you can't not look at it. You just you're just fascinated by it. Um, and. Well, it, it's uh, when it gets real, when it really gets down to brass tacks, that's when it's like. All right, so this is no longer a a discussion. This is no longer a concept. This is no longer class. We're not in class anymore learning about this. This isn't this is what is happening today right now. Uh that's when things get a little bit scary. When it's when you go out in the world, you know, it's like I remember uh when I saw a uh, I saw a drive-by shooting. Nobody was hurt. But I didn't have any concept of a gun being used for violence, like realized in my brain until I saw that. Wait, wait, you never told me about this. I never told you about this? No. No, I went, okay, so I went to church with a bunch of friends, and then we usually go to, you know, get pizza and hang out. And so I went, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go, guys. I'm gonna, I got to go get groceries. And so I drove out onto the main strip out there, and it's, I was just kind of chilling along. I, I was, had enjoyed myself. I was in a good mood. And then this, this white, um, little sedan, I see it up in front of me, straight in front of me, probably across about four lanes of traffic and it's revving its engine. And there's a dude hanging out the window with a Glock and he's firing at people at a gas station. And my first instinct was to duck. So I got, I got down and waited for him to speed off. And then I called the cops and they eventually caught him too. Um, and, but like, I didn't, I didn't understand like violence with, uh, attempted violence anyway, with firearms until that moment. Like I just don't live in that world. And so now, you know, it's not like, you know, when I hear about a shooting or something, I'm like, I remember that moment and I'm like, okay, so I remember what that felt like. So I wonder what it was like there, if it was similar, but yeah, that made it very real. Yeah, no, I, I I get that absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of like uh, you know, it, it's like that uh, that very very uh, like when a pet dies or something like that. It's this deep down, like it's in your soul, kind of like this is wrong. This 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 thing has been with me for you know however many years, and now it's just no longer here. It's just a husk. Uh, but it's it goes the same for positive things too, you know. Uh. There's something when, like, a friend of mine one day, he was, uh, his wife was, uh, gonna have a baby, but they were gonna have to induce the pregnancy. And so one day he just left the office and I was like, today's the day, huh? And he was like, yeah. And then something like in my heart was just like leaping with joy. It was really weird. Um, but I think that's, that's when you cross over from the concept to the reality. You know what I mean? It, because we have in our heads like these concepts of, you know, what it's going to be like to, uh, to take action or to fall in love or to, you know, actually get married or something like that. And those things aren't real until you're there. And it's just like, that's the moment when like all the stars have aligned and it's actually happening. Um, 
where it goes from this weird concept of of like you know fill in the blank to actually becoming concrete in your own mind because you've experienced it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I I didn't really know how to how to respond to all that. Well, I mean, I'm sure you've had those moments where things have been suddenly made very real. Oh yeah, no, I mean like a few um a few months ago, I may have saved someone's life where I stopped in the middle of the night uh, to help a motorcycle that I saw crashed on the side of the road. And like the guy, I could see his bones in his leg because his legs were all fucked up because the legs had gotten trapped under the motorcycle. And so I, you know, I called the police and I helped, uh, I helped a medic tourniquet his leg and lift him onto the stretcher and everything. And yeah, ever since then, it definitely, it's felt a little bit different when I like see, if I'm reading the newspaper and just, you know, see the, uh, the police blotter and see something about an accident, it's definitely has felt a bit different. It's been much less abstract now that I was sort of literally there on the scene, you know, applying a tourniquet to a screaming man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> shit. I'm trying to think of other times in my life where that's, that's, that kind of shit has happened. I guess the times I've been in car wrecks, I was never driving, um, never been in a car wreck. Knocking on wood. Uh, but, uh, like, that's when things get, like, really kind of visceral, you know? Um, it's, it's, it's when you realize something about, say, a friend that you didn't realize before. Um, something hidden away and, you know, dark, say. Um, something happened to them, something real that was sort of traumatizing in a way. Where, you know, that shit's like, you know, they'll tell you, you know, such and such happened. I was like punched at school or something like that. And you're like, Oh, you were punched at school. But that all that goes back to a real physical punch. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, a lot lately, the difference between abstract and concrete. And you know, this, th- these days, you know, almost everything's digital. Uh, it's not really real. It's not really concrete. You know, it's like, I say I own, you know, so many steam games, but I actually own licenses to download those steam games, which can be revoked at any time for almost any reason. Uh, I don't actually own them. I essentially have rented them uh, for an indefinite period of time. Uh, so here's an interesting thing. Uh, my brother started feeling like this recently, and he uh, he was ecstatic because he was uh, given uh, a turntable and something like, well, a lot of records that went with it. And he's just been sending me videos of each of every record he's been playing um, because it just excites him. We had a discussion about this. Uh, we talked about the, dis- the digitization age in several of my classes, and I talked about it. I gave some lectures on it while I was getting my master's. And essentially, like, digitization and digital stuff is all ones and zeros, so it's approximations of something that you're hearing. So an MP3 is technically not a uh, recording of actual uh, sound. It's, a, it's an appro- a digital approximation of actual sound. And there was this big movement when MP3s and CDs started, you know, becoming a thing where people were like holding on to their records and they're like, I won't ever go to digital because it's, you know, it's not the real thing. Even though a record scratches, at least it's like, it's a real uh, pin going around a uh, real record and putting out sound from that. And it's grainy, but technically it's closer to the real thing than a very clear MP3. It's organic in a way, as opposed to being conceptual. And there was this big 
there was this uh, phase in uh, the development of digital uh, music technology where some guy claimed he had a uh, uh, a system by which he could make lossless audio, which is to say it was qu record quality, but you never had to worry about it degrading with use. Uh, but I know there's always pushback against that kind of thing. And you're starting to see more neo-Luddites these days. You know, people who are just trying to get back to what's what's real, what's what's, you know, not just in your head, you know, pulling out of the matrix a little bit. I get it. Um, but I, my sympathy tends to go, to go toward that kind of thing as opposed to the uh, further digitization, even though it's basically, basically inevitable. And I don't want to sound like a neo-Luddite because I'm, I'm kind of not. But I also think that there's value in, in pre uh, preserving like the organic way of doing things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have any more thoughts on this, or I can just wrap this up because you know me, I can just go forever. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm good with wrapping up. Okay, cool. Well, lengthy discussion, but I think it was good. So, shall we head to the surface? I think we should. It sounds like you need to get to bed. <laughs> yeah. George, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Well, I think I'm going to finish up some paperwork and then prepare for a presentation I have to give tomorrow. Okay. Well, look at you. Always with the presentations. Yep. Always. Hey, <laughs> what about you? I'm probably going to buy uh, tickets to the Joker, honestly. <laughs> That's right. Do your duty to the corporate overlord. <laughs> okay. Well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a, becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. And as always, uh, the uh, feedback of Facebook, Twitter, always appreciated. Uh, we'd love hearing from you guys. So hope you're all doing well. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the fool play you out.